Could you open up to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount? Today's message is about the meek. And we find that in verse 5. But we're going to, um, just through the sermon, we're going to go over what we read before. Starting in verse 1. And it begins by saying, seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in our verse for today, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what we're going to talk about today is world domination. How we are going to get the earth. It's going to be ours. And the route by which this is accomplished. I want to just review real quick. Um, I believe in a sense, I've been saying this the whole time, the Sermon on the Mount is a chain, a heavenly chain. One verse is linked to the next verse. You could even call it a highway. A highway to godliness, where we started the highway with verse 3. It's the door of entrance. Blessed are the poor. And the idea of being poor is poor inside, in my spirit. There's a uh, reality. When I see God rightly, I will see myself rightly. When I see myself rightly, I'll realize I have nothing. I have nothing in my hands to really produce favor with God, merit, I cannot earn my own salvation. In and of myself, I can't produce righteousness. I am poor. Which leads us then to the next phrase, which is, blessed are those who mourn. And mourning is the idea that I see, since I see myself rightly, I realize inside of me is no good thing. And in this no good thing, it should cause me to be broken in my heart. I should mourn. Well, the beautiful thing about verse 4 is once I mourn, I mean I really turn to God and say, God, save me from this condition of sin, I will be comforted. I will be brought back to life. I will be given, I will be given forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Which leads to what I'm going to say may be the hardest part of this whole highway. It's verse 5. Verse 5 is like no other statement you'll ever find in this world. I would say verse 5 is what makes us different. I mean, really what makes us different. Verse 4, you could say to some degree, when people are caught, they'll admit it. But verse 5 is a way I see the world, or it's the way I see my own self. My character changes. Now that I see clearly... I start realizing God has given me what I don't deserve. And because of that, I should be different. Let me show you. Turn to Psalm 107. I'm not going to... Uh, I think Psalm 107 are stories of the heart. And I want you to see how each story ends. And you can actually, as we go through this story, I want you to ask yourself this really serious question. What would it feel like to be set free 
when you deserved jail. That's what this story is about. Look at Psalm 107. I'm going to read from the NLT because I like how it reads in the Psalms. And it begins by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His faithfulness and his love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? And the word redeemed is, has he bought you back? Then speak out, tell people is the idea. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. For he has gathered the exiles from many lands, from east and west, from north and south. So now he's going to give four stories of redemption. And listen closely to these stories. The first one, verse 4. Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and homeless, hungry and thirsty. They nearly died. So here's some people that have no home. They're living in the wilderness, no shelter for their heads. They don't really know where they're at. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they nearly died. That's a bad situation. Have you ever been to that point? My brother one time wanted to fast for, he wanted to fast for seven days without any food and water. He said he tried this out. My brother's a strange man. He was in the mountains in Tennessee and he said after seven days of not drinking any water, he started getting so dehydrated he was hallucinating. And he's walking in the woods, and he saw this big lake. It's a big spring-fed lake on the top of this mountain. He's like, I, I was so thirsty, I dove in, and about 10 feet down, I just started gulping water while I was in the middle of that lake. And he said, it was the best water I ever had in my life. It was so good. But the idea here, here's some people that are hungry, and they're dying. And then it says in verse 6, Lord, help, they cried. And he rescued them. He led them straight to safety, to a city where they could live. Let them praise the Lord for his great love, for the wonderful things he has done for them. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Imagine being that hungry person who now can drink water and eat. It's kind of like being in Texas. And you have no power for a week, and then it goes on. You've witnessed that, like when you're in your house and a storm blew and Man, when is the power going to be on? I'm tired of these candles. And you just, oh, I'll try to switch. And you switch it on. And it goes, it's on! We should say that every time we turn on the lights. It's on! Can you believe it? But we get so used to it. Next story is even worse. Some sat in darkness and deepest gloom, imprisoned in chains of iron and misery. So they're in darkness. Dungeons with chains on their legs, can't move them, clink, clinking around, their arms are in chains, and they try to get up. You can probably hear the drip of the cave of the dungeon they're in. And it continues, and it says, why were they in there? Probably just some good guys getting caught. No, they rebelled. They rebelled against the words of God, scorning the counsel of the Most High. That is why he broke them with hard labor. They fell. And no one was there to help them. So their own misery was self-inflicted. So these chains were deserved. And then it says, verse 13, they cried, Lord, help. Lord, help. And he saved them. So the one that they rebelled against is the one that saved them. He led them from the darkest 
and deepest gloom, he snapped their chains. Let them praise the Lord for his great love. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast, bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused, a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flame with light, my chains fell off, my soul was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. Amazing love. That's the point. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? And then the next one is verse 17. Some were fools. They rebelled and suffered for their sins. They couldn't stand the thought of food, so they must have really been sick. So sick they couldn't eat. And they were knocking on doors, death, or death's door. Lord, help. He sent out his word and healed them. Some cancer, something, they prayed and he healed them. And then the biggest one scares me half to death is verse 23. Some went out off to sea in ships, plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action, his impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. So they're on a boat, they're out in the middle of the ocean. He speaks and waves start coming, a monsoon or a hurricane comes. And it says they reeled and staggered like drunkards. They probably were being tossed from starboard to the port side of their boat. Their ships were tossed to the heavens on top of the waves. They plunged against the depths. They were on giant waves. And then they said in verse 28, Lord, help. And he saved them. He calmed the storm to a whisper. I one time was out on Lake Erie. I was caught in the middle of a storm. I'll never forget it. Right in the middle of the storm, and it came in so fast. Lightning was going on every side of the boat. And the sail got taken by some wind that the keel almost came out. My friend who was running the boat said, we have to rip down that sail because if the keel comes out, we're sunk. And it was terrifying. Hail was coming down, lightning bolt after lightning bolt. And I can just remember going into the dock finally after the storm's over. This little kid's on the shore, and he goes, Oh, you should have seen the storm. It was incredible, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was in the middle of it. It wasn't too good. And that's the idea. Here these people are in the middle of a storm. They cry for help, and God saves them. And they deserve the misery. That's really what verses 3, 4, and 5 is of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they're sinful. They are comforted. And now that they're comforted, we get to verse 5, which is we should be meek. Now we can define terms. What does it mean to be meek? Simply, it means to have a gentleness of spirit. Mild in your disposition. You're a tamed beast. You've been tamed. What do you mean you've been tamed? Well, I realize what I deserve, and uh, I'm saved. I should be tame. I should be bendable, moldable. I should be grateful. Say, dude, what, what are you complaining about? The opposite of meekness is somebody who's self-assertive, and I'm going to fight for my own self-interest. That's not a meek person. Why fight for your own self-interest when God already gave you everything? He's given you life. Can you trust him? When you were self-assertive, it got you in chains. You are the one that ruined your life in the first place. And then the 
Greek dictionary, W. E. Vine, says the definition of meek is this. Listen real close. It is the temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. And therefore, we have no reason to dispute. We have no reason to resist him. He's the one that saved me. I'll give you an illustration of what I think meekness is. I have a dog that's um, a pretty big Australian shepherd dog. I've had him for 11 years. He's a really good dog. His name's Raphael. At the age of four, Raphael had a bad case of fleas, really bad. And so I went and I bought him some flea shampoo, and I also got him some flea powder. And I took Raphael into the bathtub, and I scrubbed him up, soaped him up, and then I blow-dried him, you know. Hey, blow, I'm a good, good master. I blow-dried him, cleaned him off, and then I put some flea powder down his back, as it says. Put him to bed in his cage, and then in about a half hour later, you could hear him thrashing. He's having a grand mal seizure in his cage where he was throwing up, foaming at the mouth, and he urinated all over the cage, and he's just a mess. I get him out of the cage, and he can barely walk. He's staggering around, and he's half blind. So I take him into the bathtub, and he's shaking. Shaking. And I have to calm him. I'm like, you're all right, Rob, hang in there. And so I scrubbed him again, dried him off, put the flea powder on him, and a half hour later, he did the same thing. I called the vet, and the vet said, I don't know, what are you feeding them? It's probably what you're feeding them. So we changed his food. Next day, did the same. I had to give him a bath. He's shaking again. But the next time he had that grand mal seizure, he went completely blind for a while. He's running into chairs, knocking around, and he's just, he was listening for my voice, and he wouldn't leave my side. So the next day, the same thing happened. Two more times. It was terrible. I had to give him a bath each time, and he shaked. He was a mess. So I, I figured it's probably the shampoo and probably the flea powder. So we quit giving it to him. A day later, everything was fine. His sight came back. But he changed, and he changed in this sense. He wouldn't leave my side. I didn't even need to necessarily yell at him. Whatever I said, he would do it. My, my kids are still kind of, they're tired of how whatever I do, he will want to be where I'm at. And so a couple months ago, they did this experiment. Joseph and Gio were on the couch, and Jasmine was on the other room. They sat Roth in the middle of the table. They said, all right, we're all going to call him, and then, Dad, after a while, you just whistle for him. So they're like, come here, Roth, come here, and he doesn't move. He's looking at the kids, doesn't know what to do. I'm in a chair, and all I do is go, and he instantly comes and lies down right at my feet. That's meekness. The one who cared for him at his lowest took care of him, won his heart. A meek person has been won over by God. They don't fight him anymore. They don't make demands of him anymore. They realize this God who sent his son to die on the cross saved me from hell. I will do anything for him. That's meekness. It's, it's rare. What meekness is not. Meekness is not weakness. Remember, it's a tame lion. 
that lion is still dangerous. But the lion's tame. It's not somebody who won't hurt a fly. It's, it's, um, we're not doormats. It has nothing to do with strength, really. We like to say it's strength under control. To me, it's different. It's somebody who now is God's. I'm waiting to hear what God tells me to do. Meekness is also not niceness. We have changed niceness to be the Christian calling card. Just be nice. Don't ever argue. Don't disagree. Smooth over everything. Tolerance. Everything's tolerant. It kind of reminds me of the king on the Princess Bride. If you ever watch the Princess Bride, Buttercup is miserable married to the new king. Princess Bride comes in and kisses the king, and the king says, whoa, 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 honey, what's that for? What's that for? And Buttercup says, because you've always been so kind to me, and I won't be seeing you again since I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. And then the king says, won't that be nice? She kissed me. She... Some Christians are like that. Everything's nice. We're not allowed to say anything to anybody anymore. So the thing that killed us, called sin, we're not allowed to warn people about anymore? It's killing people. It's what got me in jail. I better say something about it. I'm not a nice person, you know, being nice and let everybody go sin their merry way and don't judge anybody. That's not Christianity. I should be upset with people when they're killing themselves. Warn them. Help them. Meekness isn't wimpiness. So what is it then? It's a person who's set free. It's a person who is no longer pulled in by the world. I don't need the world anymore because I've got God. I'm not... I am not addicted to my former obsessions. So you could say it like this. This is what a person who's meek is. There's no pride left. There's no pride left in a person. How can a person ever be proud when they just escaped a deserved death? And it was something that I incurred. I'll, I'll give you an illustration of what I mean by this. My brother and I, I just got my license probably a year before this incident. And we were going to see our cousins in Perrysville, Ohio. If you've ever been to middle Ohio, it's, it's, it's hilly country over there. Loudonville, Ohio, Perrysville, Ohio, they kind of talk like that. My cousin said, Chris, come on and visit us. So my brother and I got in the Camaro and we drove. And I was driving because I had my license and it was kind of cool. And if you go to the east side of Ohio, it's very hilly. I was driving on this road called 35, and the hill was going up, and there's a slow truck going up, and I'm behind this slow truck, and it's a double yellow line. And I was cocky, and I'm in a Camaro, and I'm going to pass that truck. So I get to the passing, well, there was no passing lane. I get to the other lane, and I start going up the hill, and the hill starts cresting. And right when I get to the top of a hill, another truck is barreling down my lane. So there's a truck going up this way and one coming this way, and I barely passed the truck and got hit by the truck by that much on both sides. And my brother looks at me, 
He doesn't say anything. Shakes his head. I turn on the radio, try to ignore him, and the song Amy comes on. You know that song? And all I could do is just start singing that song, Amy. Amy, what? And to me, I was, God, let me go, but I will never, ever, ever pass a truck when there's a double yellow line. I'm done with that forever. I almost died. And I find people are okay with going back to the sins they left. Why? Why are we okay and encourage people to even go in sins there they get this identity, this new sexual expression? It's killing you. It's not pride. We have been saved from hell. And whatever God says now, I'm going to take him at face value. Because I trust him. Second thing about meekness, it's I now know I'm walking on undeserved grace. I'm walking in sunshine. Everything now should be gravy for me. I should be a happy, pleased. I should not be a person that fights because I've been given a world. It's mine. B.B. King once said, it is hard to sing the blues from the back seat of a limousine. But I would even say this, it is hard to taste the wonder of grace also from the back seat of a limousine. When you're saved from disaster, grace tastes so sweet. It's sort of like when you go hungry your whole life and you're given a crumb, you're just fine with it. But for some reason, whenever we're given crumbs, all we do is complain. We're never happy anymore. And you're living on grace. There's this book, it's a, it's a heavy book. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's about a man who was a writer and he had a massive stroke. And he was in such a condition of a massive stroke, all he could do is blink. So all he could do is blink his eye. His whole body, it's called a locked-in syndrome. He couldn't move. Everybody thought he was brain dead and his nurse started asking him questions. She saw he could blink one eye. So she realized he he understood everything she said. So they worked up an alphabet system. A was one blink, B was two, C was three. So he started communicating to her by blinking. One word took about two minutes. And so she talked him into telling his story because he was a writer before, so he wrote this story, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and it took him over 200,000 blinks to write the book. And as a was reading this, I'm like, I can talk, I can write, I can walk. I should be grateful for that. Another book I read is this guy was doing some research on a person who went blind. He was blind by birth, actually, and they figured out how to, how to reattach his retinas on both sides, and they took off his bandages, and they, he saw life for the first time. So the guy said, what was... What was the first thing you saw? What amazed you more than anything? And the blind guy said, the color red. The color red. I can see the color red. Can you? And if you can see the color red, you should be grateful. We are walking on sunshine. 
And then the third thing, as I would say, is what meekness is. It's because you are, you are satisfied in God's salvation, you have no reason to ever retaliate or defend yourself. You don't need to. You don't need to. I trust in the one who saved me. If you look at verse 4 and 5, verse 4 is really about being inwardly focused on myself and realizing I'm sinful. Verse 5 is a relational word, how I relate to other people. And one writer said, verse 5 goes deeper than verse 4 because verse 4 is me allowing myself to criticize myself. Verse 5 is having other people point out my sin and being okay with it. You want to talk about hard. It's not hard to admit your own sin. It's hard to have other people point it out to you without retaliating. Are, are you any good at that? Or are you defensive? I like what um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to listen really closely. He says, these are words, when I read them the first time, I... I I didn't let them sink in. And so I've been really meditating on what I've been studying this week. And these words are incredible. We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves, meaning we're worried. We are always focused on ourselves. When a man becomes meek, he has finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. That statement is incredibly difficult. I defend myself almost every day. So we're not on the defensive. All that's gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself He's never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He never thinks, how wonderful I really am if only other people gave me a chance. Self-pity. What hours and years we waste in self-pity. But the man who has become meek has finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether. And you come to see you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realize that nobody can harm you. And this is amazing. John Bunyan puts it perfectly. He that is down need, need, need no fear of falling. He that is already down need no fear of falling. When a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that's too bad. You need not worry about what men may say or do. You know you deserve it all more and more. Once again, I would define meekness like this, and here's how he sums it up. And this is the root of it, and this is really hard. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do. And so the result of that, verse 6, or verse 5, is blessed are the meek, for they shall 
inherit the earth. It's all yours. The earth is all yours. And the reason it's all yours is because you already won. When you are satisfied from just being saved, everything else is gravy, so the earth is all yours. You inherit the earth. You could say it like this. A set free man is already satisfied. That's, that's inheriting the earth now. I was thinking of the idea of inherit. Inherit is when somebody gives you something. So somebody that's related to you gives you something, but also you can give an inheritance on a will to somebody you don't, may not be part of your family. But you want to, people give gifts to those that they want to give them to. And usually you want to give a gift to somebody who is appreciative of that gift, not expecting it. If you ever give a gift to your kid and he's expecting gifts and you get him a pair of $200 shoes, he's the kid that will say, they're blue, I wanted red. All right, kid, I'm never going to give you another gift again. But if you give a toy to, like a little toy, to a kid that can't even believe it, you want to just keep the world on him. I think it's the same thing. Blessed are the meek, those who are already satisfied, God's going to give you the, his world. I think he's also going to do that because eternally heaven's going to be the grand reversal with those who are meek are going to be the rulers. Those who are least are going to be first in the kingdom. That'll be an incredible place to have people in charge who have no pride. We can't even understand that. So here's the question for you. Are you meek? Here's how you can know. How would you answer this? Do you fight for your rights? Do you expect things your way? Do you get mad at criticism? Are you grateful? Like really grateful? Four questions again. Do you fight for your rights? Do you expect things? Do you get mad at criticism? And are you grateful? Or you could say, Do you follow Jesus? Remember, here's how he lived. Though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to, to grasp, to take hold of. He's equal. And he let go. What are you grasping onto? Meek people let go. Meek people let God do the defense. Meek people know God has their back. If you act like this and learn to have a character like this, the earth is yours because you'll be satisfied, even right now.